0: Indonesia secures clean energy financing from the U.S., the Myanmar junta releases thousands of political prisoners, and Malaysia holds its 15th general election. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Karen Lee, and today is November 22nd, 2022. On today's show...
1: We've got Indonesia as the G20 president this year, but now passing next to India. If we more narrowly think about climate and emissions reduction, the critical partners to have in achieving the, the necessary level of emissions reduction are large emerging market economies. There may be an opportunity here in having some of the largest emerging economies, also the largest emerging emitters in leadership roles, because it does get everybody hopefully rowing in the same direction.
0: That was Stephanie Siegel, who chatted with Greg Poling and Alina Noor on Indonesia's G20 chairmanship. It's been a busy month for Southeast Asia, and we're excited to recap these summit highlights for you. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Ray Joseph in the studio. Ray is an intern with the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at CSIS. Welcome, Ray.
2: Thanks for having me, Karen. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. So, Ray, as a former enlisted Marine in the Marine Corps, would you say being an intern at AMTI is harder?
2: I would say it's about the same. There's less mud. There's less sand. I can sleep in my own bed. so
0: That's very nice to hear. Why don't you kick us off with what happened in Indonesia last week?
2: Sure thing, Karen. During the G20 leaders' summit in Bali, Indonesian President Joko Widodo, President Biden, and President of the European Commission Ursula von der Leyen unveiled a new energy partnership to help Indonesia transition away from fossil fuels towards renewable sources. This is huge news considering that Indonesia is the world's largest coal exporter.
0: Exactly, and the country's pursuit of sustainable development has paid off. The Just Energy Transition Partnership, also known as JETP, will mobilize $20 billion over the next three to five years to accelerate, like the name implies, a just energy transition. Among other provisions, the initiative will help Indonesia reach net zero emissions in its power sector by 2050, bringing forward the original timeline by 10 years.
2: 10 billion will come from public sector pledges while the remaining 10 billion will be mobilized by an initial set of private financial institutions, including Bank of America, Citi, and Deutsche Bank. Overall, JetP will promote Indonesia's climate goals, support economic growth, and provide new skilled job opportunities. The partnership is co-led by Japan along with the United Kingdom, Germany, France, Canada, Italy, Norway, and Denmark. A lot of cooks in the kitchen. The
0: more the merrier when it comes to combating climate change, right? Vietnam is set to follow Indonesia with a similar climate financing package of around $11 billion to shift its economy away from coal and boost the rollout of renewable energy sources. Final details are set to be released during the EU-ASEAN summit on December 14th.
2: I was under the impression that Vietnamese officials were still working on ironing out the last few details of the package. Right, Karen?
0: That's correct, Ray. There remains the issue of how to decarbonize the country's power sector, as well as the additional work that needs to go into winning over key members of the country's leadership, who remain skeptical of the final funding numbers and the potential debt Vietnam might be taking on. There's also the issue of Vietnam's jailed environmental activists, including globally recognized climate advocate Nguyen Thi Khan, who was arrested back in January on tax evasion charges, according to Vietnamese state-owned media. This has been seen by many as a new tactic of repression by Vietnam's government to silence environmental leaders.
2: Moving on to some new developments in Myanmar this week, on November 17, Myanmar's military junta announced it would release close to 6,000 political prisoners, including prominent foreign nationals like former British envoy Vicky Bowman, Australian economist Sean Turnell, and Japanese filmmaker Toro Kubota. The three represent only a fraction of the many foreign nationals imprisoned in Myanmar since the February 2021 coup. Since then, the regime has detained over 16,000 people on political charges, approximately 13,000 of whom were still imprisoned prior to the amnesty, according to the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners.
0: From what I've read, the announcement came as a surprise. The Junta spokesperson said that the regime didn't negotiate the release with the UK, Australia, or Japan. Do you think this was unprompted, Ray? What's your read?
2: That's a good question. The release immediately followed the ASEAN summit in Phnom Penh, where ASEAN leaders warned the junta that it must make progress on the five-point consensus or risk its future seat at the table. Indonesia has pushed a particularly hard line on excluding Myanmar's military regime from subsequent meetings should it fail to implement the plan. With Indonesia assuming the ASEAN chairmanship for 2023, it is possible the junta have released the prisoners as a kind of insurance policy for sustaining its participation and legitimacy in the bloc.
0: Well, the next story I have on my list is unfolding developments in Thailand, specifically the protests in Bangkok during the APEC Leaders Summit. On November 17th, around 300 protesters consisting of young pro-democracy activists, rural farmers and monks gathered near Bangkok's democracy monument a few miles from the summit venue. Police came under fire after a video was released showing an officer in riot gear pushing an elderly monk into a wall. In addition to demanding Prime Minister Prayut's resignation and monarchy reform, protesters were calling for APEC leaders to reject the Thai government's proposal of a bio-circular green economy model.
2: Oh, interesting. Looks like Boston Consulting Group can move aside for this new acronym. Wait, we were just talking about clean energy initiatives. What exactly do protesters not like about the proposal?
0: While the BCG model aims to transform the Thai economy into a green engine of growth, protesters claim that it favors conglomerates and multinational investors over poor farmers. Forced displacement is a key concern, with activists claiming that the proposal will further strengthen the military-aligned government's rationale for displacing farmers and minority groups from their lands in favor of constructing large carbon capture projects.
2: Thanks for the insight on that, Karen. Now for our last story, we have to talk about the Malaysian general election.
0: Let me tell you, Ray, I had to pause watching Game of Thrones over the weekend to follow these results. On November 19th, almost 15 million Malaysians cast their votes, and the result is a hung parliament for the first time in Malaysia's history, meaning no coalition has secured a majority. The current ruling coalition, Barisan Nacional, performed much worse than expected and won only 30 seats in the 222-seat parliament. The remaining two coalitions now have, until 2 p.m. on Tuesday, to present their prime minister candidates to the king, so we should have clear results by the time this episode is released. Pakatan Harapan currently leads with 82 seats to Perikatan Nacional 73, and 112 votes from MPs are needed to elect a prime minister.
2: I would say I'm on the edge of my seat, but the showdown will likely be between Muhyiddin Yusin from Perikatan National who was prime minister for just 17 months from 2020 to 2021 and Anwar Ibrahim from Pakatan Harapan. Anwar has been called Malaysia's longest serving prime minister in waiting after serving as opposition leader for many years. He has also been jailed twice for sodomy and corruption, so this would be quite a comeback.
0: Although Malaysian stocks and the ringgit slipped slightly this morning at the prospect of this ongoing political instability, analysts say that the election results are unlikely to impact Malaysia's longer-term growth outlook. And that's a wrap on the headlines. Thanks for stopping by, Ray.
2: Pleasure's all mine, Karen.
0: Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Stephanie Siegel.
3: Hi, folks. Welcome back to Southeast Asia Radio. As always, I'm your host, Gregory Poling, joined by my co-host, Alina Noor. Hello again. And today we're joined by our special guest, my longtime colleague, uh, Stephanie Siegel, who's a senior fellow with the economics program here at CSIS. Hi, Stephanie.
1: Hi, guys. Great to be with you.
3: Well, we have a ton to talk about, which is why we need Stephanie, because uh, President Biden and now Vice President Harris have gone on a whirlwind tour of all the great summits of Asia over the last week or so. Uh, and we want to try to get through all of them before the Thanksgiving holiday. So for those who are listening, you'll know that this episode dropped a day or two early. So there might be some things we missed, but we're going to do our best. So to kick us off, give everybody the lay of the land. On November 11th, President Biden started this trip with a stop in Sharm El sheik Egypt, for the 27th Conference of Parties, COP27, which had been ongoing for a week by that point and continues on, I think, until today. He then flew from Egypt to Phnom Penh, Cambodia, for the ASEAN and East Asia and U.S. ASEAN summits, which were running from November 10th to 13th. Then he flew to Bali, Indonesia for the Group of 20 summits on November 15th to 16th, which a lot of the coverage, I'm sure folks know, included the first bilateral meeting with President Xi Jinping of China. President Biden then came home to attend his granddaughter's wedding at the White House, and Vice President Harris stepped in to go to Bangkok, uh, Thailand, for the annual Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit on November 18th to 19th, uh, which is happening while we're recording this. So if there's some massive uh, announcement tomorrow, we won't know about it. and then. Vice President Harris will cap off her trip by moving on to uh, the Philippines next week, where she will meet with President Marcos Jr. and Vice President Duterte in Manila. And then she'll fly to Palawan, where she will become the highest ranking U.S. official to ever visit Palawan in a very clear sign of U.S. commitment for the Philippines in the South China Sea. So that's a lot. Stephanie, I need you to start us off by talking about Sharm el-Sheikh and kind of more generally what the climate change message was throughout this tour.
1: Sure. Yeah. No. And I'm I'm exhausted just listening to you recount that itinerary. It's pretty dense, to say the least. You mentioned today should be the last day of COP, um, but the the current news, at least as we know it right now, is that there's an extension to get to some greater agreements. And and the big, you know, as far as the big issues that are being covered this year you know, certainly the, the main commitment here is how to stay within that 1.5 degree temperature rise and what sorts of commitments are needed by countries to achieve that goal. And and honestly, the progress on nationally determined contributions have, um, have been lacking since the last COP. Um, and so there's still a need, I guess, for greater ambition and And I would say some disappointment as far as the the progress that's been made with the very important exception of the United States. Um, And so here I think it is worth highlighting the position that the U.S. went into this year's COP, um, having passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which includes a lot of incentives that bring us a whole lot closer to meeting our 2030 commitment of having our emissions relative to 2005. So the U.S. goes into this COP with um, credibility as far as actually having taken action that gets us closer to our commitment and then urging other countries to take a similarly ambitious approach. I would say (laughs) that the um, the enthusiasm for that among the other countries that were there, I mean, certainly I think the rest of the world is is happy to see the U.S. moving in that direction, but a lot of the discussion for folks that have been following COP this year has been around the topic of loss and damage. And this is the idea that many of the Countries of the world, and in particular, um, relatively poorer countries are those that are suffering the worst effects of climate change. And so I think the number is around 130 countries attending COP this year were insistent that there needed to be progress on loss and damage and specifically a fund to basically compensate those countries that haven't historically been large emitters but are now suffering the worst kind of economic impacts from climate change. And that was really at a stalemate up until yesterday. You had the advanced economies basically resisting the idea of a fund for loss and damage. And then you had the European Union table a proposal for a fund yesterday and that's where that sits. And and one of the reasons for the delay and likely why we haven't concluded uh, on time is to get some resolution around what to do with this loss and damage. I guess one other thing that I would flag, and it links very much to the G20, which I guess is one, one or two steps removed then from where we are with COP, is the priority that was given to food um, in the food crisis in COP this year and how that carried over into the G20. So I, I think that's important. One, because it truly is a global food security crisis right now, exacerbated by both climate change and uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And two, it's the fact that we're, I guess, In the food crisis, we start to see um, manifest the concerns about the impacts of climate change. And I think the need for the world to grapple with the food crisis um, certainly justifies it being on the agenda. But I think it also can motivate action as far as underscoring that if we're not acting on climate now, the magnitude of the crises to come be that much worse so food was definitely a priority issue this year at cop and then the last thing that i'll flag that was also carried over into the g20 was um discussion of reform of the the multilateral development banks and the world bank in particular to deal with some of these crises um so when we get to the g20 i'll pick back up on those two themes
3: All right, Stephanie, thank you so much for that download. And we will pick up some of those themes when we get to Bali. As a reminder, uh, again, for listeners, we are recording this on Friday, November 18th here in the States because we want to enjoy Thanksgiving next week. So if there is a big breakthrough at COP on the the, the extended days or some other breakthroughs at APEC, you'll have to read about the news. But in the meantime, let's move on to Phnom Penh uh, following President Biden's trip Alina, what jumped out at you about the ASEAN and the U.S. ASEAN and East Asia summits this year?
4: So for me, U.S. ASEAN and and the whole ASEAN summitry was basically expected. Um, I wasn't particularly surprised by anything. I honestly would have preferred to see uh, more pledges of commitment in a stronger and more concrete manner from um, the United States, for example, But I think the fact that President Biden simply showed up and was there was certainly very much appreciated. Of course, there was the whole uh, inauguration of the comprehensive partnership between the U.S. and ASEAN that was promised from the special summit earlier this year. So the fact that that worked out was also another bonus. Um, How that fleshes out in the future is something I think we're all going to be watching, especially with uh, U.S. elections coming up, U.S. presidential elections coming up in 2024. What did you think, Greg?
3: Yeah, I mean, like you said, there was no major surprises. The U.S.-ASEAN Comprehensive Strategic Partnership had been telegraphed. They had agreed at the special U.S.-ASEAN summit here in D.C. in the spring that they would do that this year. It's symbolically important because the U.S. is now the third comprehensive strategic partner alongside China and Australia. Um, the, uh, you know, there was a special leaders meeting before the summit to talk about Myanmar's status and the crisis in Myanmar. I was a bit disappointed that that didn't lead to more concrete language about setting a timetable of some sort on the junta of Myanmar to abide by the ASEAN five point consensus to end the civil war. Although um, maybe now with Indonesia having taken over the chair, there will be a little more pressure. I'm not terribly optimistic, but President Jokowi has suggested at least that he's getting fed up and, and certainly some others are. As you'd expect, the standards fact sheets from the U.S. about all the many programs they were launching and all of them are very, very good. But I think it was more... Iteration on a lot of the things that were already you know a lot of the progress that was made at the special summit in the spring, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, this was normal diplomacy and ASEAN has been missing normal diplomacy from the US for four years or so now. Um, a US president has not attended the East Asia summit since 2016. So that alone is helpful. I will flag the one thing that you glossed over that I can't believe you glossed over, which was the formal announcement that Timor-Leste will become the 11th member of ASEAN after more than a decade of waiting, although we don't know exactly what that timetable looks like. But I would expect it's likely to happen under Indonesia's chairmanship this year.
4: In principle, Greg, we're still at in principle. But granted, it's, it's uh, an advancement of keeping Timor-Leste waiting in the wings for more than a decade. Um, I will say, though, that one variable with regards to the timeline on Myanmar is that we're recording this on the 18th of November. Tomorrow, Malaysia goes to the polls and general elections. And a lot of the, the progress on Myanmar has hinged, I would say, on Malaysia's foreign minister, Saifuddin Abdullah. And whoever takes his portfolio, or if he retains his portfolio with the outcome of the general elections in Malaysia, is going to have quite a significant impact on how the Myanmar timeline moves along.
3: That's exactly right. The one other thing I'll flag was uh, that Ukraine became the latest uh, state to accede to ASEAN's Treaty of Amity and Cooperation, formally becoming a dialogue partner of ASEAN, which facilitated uh, the foreign minister of Ukraine taking part in the meetings and sneaking in a little more um, maybe language about Russia than we otherwise would have gotten, although the chairman's statement was pr- still pretty vague. But it basically followed the pattern that I think we saw at all of these the East Asia Summit, ASEAN Summit. Uh, G20 and most recently the APEC summits all have joint statements that basically say most of us condemned Russia, but a few had other opinions uh, and that was good enough. And we can all guess who the few are. But so, all right, let's in the interest of time, uh, follow the president's extremely busy schedule over to Bali for the G20. So, Stephanie, uh, back over to you, G20.
1: G20. Well, and in, in I actually thinking we were talking a little bit before, I think one of the The most significant outcomes from the G20 was something that actually happened on the margins um, and not as part of the formal convening, and that was the meeting between Presidents Biden and Xi. I think folks that are following this will know that it ended up being a pretty lengthy meeting, I think three and a half hours or so. And certainly just the fact that they met, I mean, that was in doubt, I think, up until just a few days before They actually met, um, and I think the meeting was a sign of uh, recognizing that despite the pretty heightened tensions between the two countries right now, that there is still a place for dialogue, and and I think everyone has heard the expression of putting a floor on the relationship um, and making sure that things didn't deteriorate further. Certainly the backdrop to this, um, Russia's invasion, the spillovers from that invasion, getting into food and fuel security um, at a time when the world hasn't yet truly uh, recovered from, from a pandemic. The situation, the outlook is in many respects quite difficult. And the message that we heard from Indonesia going into the summit is we need to have a forum in which we can deal with some of these global problems and that there isn't actually a a solution to many of them unless we are working cooperatively. So I think the the fact that they met is a very positive outcome for the world. Um, it certainly is a positive outcome for Indonesia in its G20 year. And then what they were able to get out of the summit itself and in the leader's statement um, I think, as as you mentioned, there is language that strongly condemns Russia um, and is very explicit in referencing back to the UN resolutions. There was, uh, very early on in that leader's statement, a, uh, a re-acknowledgement of the role of the G20 as the premier forum for economic cooperation. And if you remember going into the summit, there were people asking you know, does this forum even matter? Is there even room to have, you know, this group of countries convene? And I I think the outcome is, uh, is a resounding yes to that. And last thing I'll say is, you know, who wasn't there? So the condemnation language is important, but also just the appearance of this global convening with the world's largest economies, um, the most powerful leaders and Putin is not there in attendance. I think that really speaks volumes.
3: Yeah. And despite um, President Jokowi's shuttle diplomacy earlier this year to Kiev and Moscow to try to make sure that everybody came, I don't think that Jakarta was that upset at the end of the day that Putin chose not to come. It kind of was perhaps the best possible for them. They got to say they invited Putin and Putin got to not be there, which was yeah. a win-win for everybody.
1: Yeah, agree. And then if you look at the statement, you know, then they got, you know, down to business, it it read very much like, you know, uh, G20 summits of the past and trying to deal with some of these, you know, these big issues. And I mentioned kind of the food security component. There was a lot of language in the statement kind of recognizing the urgency of the situation, um, acknowledging some of the efforts by the multilateral institutions to, to address the food security crisis. There was also language in there that the use of nuclear weapons is inadmissible. I think that's probably a first for Uh, the preeminent forum on economic cooperation um, to have that statement in there. But um, yeah, it just goes to show that uh, without Putin there, they actually were able to get to some of the most pressing issues and use the forum as it has the potential to be used.
4: I think what's significant also is that Along the lines of getting down to business, um, Indonesia's agenda for its G20 chairmanship was heavily predicated on uh, the digital economy. And so you saw, I think, quite a bit of encouraging signs along that road. But I'm actually looking forward to the next four chairmanships down the line because they're all going to be chaired. G20 is going to be chaired by essentially global south countries in, in quick succession. And so I think Indonesia would like to think of itself as having set the agenda for the developing world. And when the others take the beta and India being next in line, it'll be really interesting to see how the economic and development angle play out vis-a-vis what's going on in the
1: world right now. Yeah, I I, I agree very much with that. And actually, I mean, we didn't mention, uh, we talked about climate, obviously, in the context of COP, but how... Many of those discussions were then brought over into the G20. Actually, because we don't have the final statement from the COP at this point, we do have the G20 leader statement, which actually recommits or affirms the commitment to the 1.5 degree temperature rise. So even though <laughs> COP has not agreed language, we do have the, the 20 largest economies agreeing to reiterate their support for that target. And as you pointed out, Alina, we've got Indonesia as the G20 president this year, but now passing next to India and having the succession of of emerging market economies. If we think about climate and if we more narrowly think about climate and emissions reduction, the critical partners to have in achieving the, the necessary level of emissions reduction are large emerging market economies, in addition to the advanced economies. So there may be an opportunity here in having some of the largest emerging economies, also the largest emerging emitters, (laughs) to put it that way, um, in having them in leadership roles, because it does get everybody hopefully rowing in the same direction.
3: I thought uh, it was also revealing uh, to see how President Jokowi himself handled the G20 summit. You know, there was there was an effort to keep the summit itself on message. So the focus on energy security, food security, fighting inflation, digital transformation and climate change, all the things that they said they want to talk. And there was some very clear statements from the Indonesian government that G20 is not the place to argue over security matters. So let's get Ukraine out of the way and then move on. But Jokowi himself also treated the summit, the way he treats pretty much everything, which was a way to bring economic benefits to Indonesia. So he had a, an interview with, with Nikkei where he points out, you know, he was asked by the G20. And the first thing he says is, well, Indonesia got over 70 billion dollars in pledged investment and, and loans. And the most significant of that, I would imagine, from our perspective, is this 20 billion dollar uh, just economic transition partnership funded by the U.S., Japan other donors. Uh, what is a just energy transition partnership? Yeah.
1: So the Jet P is something that um, was first announced at last year's COP, um, with the first agreement being signed with South Africa and the International Partners Group, which includes the United States and other many other mostly G7 countries. The idea here, I think, is to recognize the political realities that energy transitions are extremely challenging. And uh, we cannot act because we've lived, <laughs> this is our lived experience, right? We know how hard it is to get progress on climate legislation, energy transformation. Um, and the pace at which we have to move now means that there's going to be some dislocation and you've got to have a plan in place for dealing with that. Um, so in the case of South Africa, the efforts have been put into transitioning, well, for all of the anticipated jet pea countries, helping them to transition off of coal. And there's a pretty significant financing that goes along with these jet peas in the case of South Africa. The headline number announced is north of $8 billion. Now, this next JetP, which was just recently announced at the G20, um, the price tag there, as you mentioned, is about $20 billion. And that is to come from a combination of private and official sector finance. The details. <laughs> the devil is in the details. Um, so we don't have a ton of detail about the specific components of the jet peas, but it's a statement of intention to reduce Emissions and to make this energy transition, um, but as many have pointed out, the the document that kind of underlies the jet itself it's it's two pages long, and and how you actually achieve this transition in a way that's consistent with Indonesia's goals and what the international community hopes for emissions reduction that is is a work in progress. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I, I uh, noticed that the Vietnamese who were also negotiating a JetP immediately said, well, we're getting close to, to finalizing ours as well, but now that the Indonesians have theirs, we're going to look real close at the terms and make sure that ours is as lucrative as, as Indonesia's. Um, we had a, a lot of other things announced at G20 that we don't have time to get into. I will flag that the US has finalized the next Millennium Challenge uh, Corporation Compact with Indonesia to the tune of $700 million and that Exxon announced a $2.5 billion commercial deal to explore carbon capture technology in Indonesia, all of which would be great for a future podcast when we have more time. But we have one more stop to go, and that was the vice president's trip to APEC. Uh, We don't know exactly what's going to be announced, but Alina, I'm curious for your thoughts on the overall optics. Um, Kamala Harris is not the president of the United States, and she has to take the chairmanship, for 2023 on behalf of the president. How's that going to be received in Bangkok?
4: I mean, I think it's it's a positive that the vice president is there and, you know, she's, I think, seen as kind of the successor to President Biden. And so in a way, it's her getting familiar, more familiar with the region and the fact that she's at APEC to basically say, hey, we're taking over and I'm interested in what's going on in the region. That's a good sign. Um, I did... Take a glance at her speech at the CEO summit though and I thought it was a little awkward that most of his speech okay half, the first half of his speech was really focused on security issues and signaling that the US is here um, and the second half of his speech then transitioned into more business investment type messaging so I don't know what that says for uh, a clear sign of commitment in the economic and investment space from the US towards Southeast Asia. Um, And the fact that she's going to Palawan, as you mentioned after this, Greg, seems to me that the US messaging is still quite heavily um, in favor of security and defense relations instead of the economic angle. What do you think?
3: Yeah, I mean, she's also not there alone. Secretary Blinken is there. Um, USTR Tai is there. And there was a a joint press conference with both of them before the APEC meetings kicked off. And it was quite noticeable that uh, if you look at the word count, Secretary Blinken spent a lot more time talking than Catherine Tai did. And every time somebody asked Catherine Tai about the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, she basically said, yep, IPEF is going to be real good. Next question. Um, So the region's still waiting to figure out what exactly the U.S.'s game is on economics. Um, And maybe the U.S. is still waiting to find out as well.
1: Yeah, if I could just jump in. The thing that's very interesting to me, and I'm sure you've talked about it previously, is what the world wants is market access. And there's a real reluctance to provide that. And the fact that we're having a very hard time thinking about kind of what is the carrot to, um, to help the U.S. kind of make its case, we've, in some respects, on climate, going back to that, we've kind of learned a lesson that it's a lot easier to meet your objectives when you've got kind of the carrots on offer, <laughs> Then, then um, not. So, you know, I think a lot of people hopes that, that there might be a reconsideration of our approach there, and kind of a there there on IPF. But uh, we'll see. We can hope.
3: For one shining week, Southeast Asia has been the center of the geopolitical universe. It will now remain the center of our universe, but I think perhaps not uh, of the rest of the world until next November. <laughs> but in the meantime, we will see all of you for the next episode on the other side of the Thanksgiving break. Uh, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. And Alina, as always, thank you for helping me sound a little smarter.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Thanks, Alina.
0: Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you may have.
2: Do us a favor and subscribe. Give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify, or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us.
0: Marla Hiller is our producer. Our interns are Nikki Arcado and Mike Tiernan. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Karen Lee.
2: And I'm Ray Joseph.
0: To our U.S. listeners, happy Thanksgiving, and we'll see you in a couple weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.